Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Milo. Sorry to introduce myself earlier. When was the last time that you wrote a letter? I mean, like physically wrote a letter. Yesterday. Nice. All right. So the thing with writing a letter is you have to like physically sit down. You can tell I've been working on this all week, so I got to do this. All right. So you got to sit down. You got to get yourself situated. You're going to dig through your desk. You're going to find, you know, where you've kept all your stuff. You're going to find where exactly or what you need. And so uh, in that, you're going to have to find a piece of paper. You're going to have to find exactly, you know, where you might cut yourself on the edge of it. You might have to find a stamp. You might have to, it's, it's a difficult process. But we don't do it very often. At all, in fact. And so if you were going to sit down and write a letter, maybe this week, and let me encourage you actually to do this this week. I'm going to do it right here because I told her that I would. Maybe you would write a letter to Miss Jeanette Uhl. I think I'm saying her last name appropriately. I went and visited her this week. Jeanette is 100 years old this week. And she has, as she's staying at Sunrays, and at Sunrays Ministries, they've said, we really would like to have a hundred uh, cards, a hundred letters to be able to stick on the wall in her room to just let her know uh, that we care for her. And at that point, when I was there on Tuesday, they had about 30 letters. And so they had a long ways to go. Her birthday is later this week. And so if you'll write with me, so I, here, here's what I'm going to write. I say, let's see. Dear Jeanette, I'd already written that in ahead of time. I just want to take a moment this morning as a part of our worship service to thank you and encourage you for serving God faithfully all these years. God bless you. Happy 100th birthday. Pastor Milo Wilson, I have to actually tell her where I'm from because she might forget if you've met with her in a while. Um, I met her the other day and I'll write Randall Church actually to be certain that she knows where I'm from. Okay, did someone time me? I'm not sure. Done, okay. I will send that off to her this week. There's something very kinesthetic, uh, very special about, I'll leave that there so don't forget it, letter writing. This is my Camp Hickory Hill mug for all of those who are wondering. I got a thumbs up from Sam, thanks for that. So when it comes to letter writing, for me, so this weekend is uh, graduation weekend here in Western New York. And we have a few people who listen to our podcast or different things that are from out of this area. But so school has been out in a lot of areas around the country for a while. But here in Western New York, school let out, graduations were Friday, Saturday. And for me, I was just thinking back and remembering as I was preparing this sermon and thinking through what I was going to share with you this morning about 18 years ago when I graduated high school in 1999. And that week, that after that graduation, there was a week for me uh, of just going to grad parties. It was just a string of them, one after another after another. And then I shipped off for boot camp in the Marine Corps. So I had one week of summer vacation, 
and then I shipped off uh, for boot camp. And it was there in the military, and many of you who've served in the military, that I learned the art of letter writing. Uh, because really when it comes down to it, uh, drill instructors have not uh, been caught up with the fact that people prefer to tweet or people prefer to send messages. People haven't caught up with that fact yet, or the drill instructors haven't caught up with that fact yet. And so the only form of communication that you have in the military, particularly in boot camp when you're in this isolated setting, is through letter writing. And so in that process, I wrote letters to my family over the years, or over that uh, time. And, and a couple years ago, my mom actually gave me a bundle. It was a, a big bag of letters that I had written during that time to her and to my family. I found out later what was happening was I came from a small country church. And so uh, Wednesday night was their prayer meeting. And so uh, at Wednesday night prayer meeting in front of uh, the church or the few people that were gathered there, they would read my letters uh, that I was in boot camp and what was going on and how it was going and that type of thing. And then they would actually take those letters and so they read it to everyone and then uh, they would pray for me and pray for what I was going through that week and then they divvied up uh, whoever was there in that meeting that they would then write letters back to me as a group uh, over those weeks and just be letters of encouragement and just letting me know that they were praying for me and they were you know, encouraging me uh, through this boot camp experience. So in South Carolina, in the swamp at Paris Island with drill instructors and sand fleas all swirling around me all the time, I learned the art of letter writing. And those letters that I got from those people in the church and the letters that I sent to them were very valuable uh, both ways, going back and forth. Uh, many of your kids will go to summer camp in the next weeks uh, this summer. There's something very valuable about getting a letter at camp. I mean, sometimes it means you have to actually write the letter before they even leave for camp to make sure that it's going to get there in time. But when you're at camp, when you're away from home, uh, getting these letters are very valuable. They're important. And that handwritten version with the smudges and the mistakes and uh, some of you left-handed writers out there, I don't know how you do it. You get ink all the way up your arm all the time and that's just your life and that's, that's who you are and man. But so you're writing the letter, like, but that makes it authentic. That makes it real. That makes it tangible. It adds something. All those smudges add something. So today we're going to finish our study in the book of Hebrews. If you haven't been with us for the whole journey, this is a letter that was written uh, to the people, to the Hebrews, but we don't actually know who the author is. As we've gone through this book of Hebrews, we've, we've had a few series along the way. We started during the Advent season, and so this is actually, uh, we've made it through almost 30 weeks together uh, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we took a little break for a while, and we went through uh, the sermon series. We, we called them He is Greater. Uh, then in the New Year's, we said Resolution. And then later we said a better way, and then this was the race. And so we've made our way through this book of Hebrews, and we've come to the finish. And at the beginning of the study, if you remember, we told you or we shared with you that we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. We don't know who it was written by. From the beginning, uh, we, we told you that this letter that was written was written to the people of, uh, of the Jews that were there who had become Christians, and they were serving the Lord, but they were getting pulled back towards Judaism and, and being told to dismiss and, and, and push away the things that they had learned about Jesus Christ. So most scholars say 
that this couldn't be written by Paul. Initially, many thought that this was one of Paul's letters. In fact, some of your Bibles, there are times their Bibles still have it marked in the top at the beginning of that uh, section that will say uh, one of Paul's letters. But now, most scholars believe that that's not really the case because of the style that was used. Uh, grammatically, the way that it is written is very different from Paul's writings. And then there's the one key factor that all of Paul's epistles are signed by Paul. He makes sure that he has signed that this letter was written with his own hand, he often says. Uh, and so he wants to say that. So the author of Hebrews uh, it doesn't do that, doesn't sign this letter. We don't know why, uh, but we don't think that it's Paul. Uh, there's many who think that this could have been written by Apollos. Some say Barnabas. There's still others who say it was written by Luke or Silas or even Priscilla uh, may have written it. So it's really all over the board uh, who, ha who has written this letter and, and how it was written to us, but it is full of things for us to learn, and we've spent the last number of months doing that. When it's all said and done, we need to accept this is what well, Origen, who's uh, one of the fathers of the faith, and he was in Alexander. This is what he said specifically about the book of Hebrews. He said, only God knows who wrote it. Only God knows who wrote it. We simply do not know where it came from. So do we know anything about the author of Hebrews? Well, the answer is yes. From studying this letter, as we've made our way through this letter, here's a few things hopefully you've picked up over the last number of months, just as a recap of the book of Hebrews. From studying this letter, we know a number of things about the author specifically. He wanted readers to stay committed to Jesus. He wanted them to endure and persevere. He wanted them to love each other, to be at peace with all people. He wanted them to continue to fellowship together faithfully and motivate each other in Christ. He wanted them to stay committed to Christ, stay committed to the gospel teaching. Do not be led away by strange teachings. Do not be pulled away by what other people are teaching. He wanted them to be loyal to their leaders and their leadership. He wanted them to understand why Jesus was and is the ultimate. That's why when we started this series, we used that title, He is Greater. It's continually reminding us that Jesus is greater than the high priest, greater than Moses. Uh, the author tells us he is greater than Melchizedek, the high priest. He is greater than this king and the priest. He is greater than the old sacrificial system. And on and on and on. The truth is, we know a lot about this author. We just don't know his name or her name. But what we do know, we know their heart. He's vulnerable. He deeply cared for people, desiring to be with them. So if you'll take your Bibles, if you haven't already, turn to Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. If you're working out of the one in the pew in front of you this morning, it's on page 1265. It's a black uh, Bible in front of you. We're working out of the New International Version today. Hebrews chapter 13, let's talk a moment about the letter writer's heart. We know his heart is vulnerable. We know that he deeply cared for these people. They desired to be together with them. In verse 18, we finished this verse last week, but we're going to start with it today just as a transition. It says, verse 18, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. The author is begging, he's asking, he's imploring, he's saying, please pray for me. Keep praying. 
We don't know exactly what it would be. He asked them to pray that he would have a clear conscience and that he would act honorably. Uh, many scholars believe that this, this author was in prison himself or herself uh, being persecuted for their faith and saying, act honorably. Those who have me uh, in prison here, those who are uh, in charge of, of, of me here while I'm in jail, that, they would, that I would live honorably in front of them, that I would demonstrate Christ Jesus as how I'm carrying myself in this context, in this place. Pray for me here, that I would be able to have a clear conscience in what I'm doing that my captors will be able to see Jesus Christ tangibly in me. What we do see here is a person who is open and honest with that daily struggle that each of us has of following God's will and following after Christ and knowing that you're doing the right thing. The author is being vulnerable. The author is not portraying perfection by any means. I like that. I like that type of writing. I like that person. I, that's the type of person that I want to be. Those are the type of people that I want to be around. People who are vulnerable and authentic enough to say, pray for me. This is what I'm going through. This is not easy and I'm, I'm struggling. Help me keep a clear conscience. Help me pursue after God in the way that I know that I'm supposed to. Pray for me in that. That's the type of person I want to be. Those are the type of people you and I want to be around. But how does the author close his letter? How does, how does he bring it to a close, and how will we bring this series to a close here today? What are his final thoughts? The header in my Bible reads this way. It says, benedictions and final greetings. That's where we'll be today. Picking up in verse 20, I'm going to read through uh, the rest of the chapter, and then we'll go back and deal with some things specifically. Beginning in verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, that he may work in us what is pleasing to him through Christ Jesus, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with me my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come to him and see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. So if the author of Hebrews were sitting here today, if he was sitting at this desk that I've set up this morning, sitting there writing, letting us know what it is that he wants us to know, or, or writing to someone else somewhere else, you just know that this, the final thought, the final whatever he was going to pen was going to be passed on. What are these final thoughts? Here's your outline for you this morning. You've got a white sheet of paper in your bulletin this morning. You can work with it. Here's your first thing that he wants us to know. You have a God of peace. You have a God of peace. This author wants you to know that you have a God of peace. Let me read verse 20 again. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, our God of peace, he is at peace with himself and he is at peace with you. How many of you wish that you grew up in a home where your parents, your father was at peace, your mother was at peace, and that that was really what you could say about your mother and father? But many of you grew up in homes where that was not the case. Either one of them was not present or the one that was was not at peace within themselves. That struggle was constant. That tension was always there. That tension within themselves or with one another or with you, the child. 
That tension was constant. It was always pulling in every direction. You didn't get it. There was, it was not happy. It was not sweet. It was not uh, relaxed. It was not secure. It was uncertain. Our God is a God of peace. You wanted that. You wanted that certainty. You wanted that tension to, to be able to calm itself. and, and to re, You wanted that peace, and you may not even have known it. You didn't know what to call it or what it looked like. Because that's in us as humankind, this pursuit after that. Sometimes we call it the pursuit of happiness, but it's a, a, the matter of being at peace. And the promise as we end the book of Hebrews is this. Now you have it. Now you have it. Your Father in heaven is a God of peace. Maybe the father figure that you knew was not a, was not a person of peace. Maybe he was not a father who, who carried himself in that way, but the God that we serve, the God that we read about in Scripture, the God that is talked about here in Hebrews, who's been put forward for us to look at and put on a pedestal for us to pursue is a God of peace. He is at peace with himself, and he is at peace with with you. He's like a great ocean that while there are things that are tossing it back and forth, the ocean itself is a peaceful place. The ocean itself is at rest with itself. The ocean is out there. It's huge. It's large. But it's at peace. And God is so great and so good. He gave his son to suffer in your place and in mine so that you and the rest of our eternal family can have peace this morning. Our God is a God of peace. You have a God of peace. Secondly, also in verse 20, you have a God of power. Who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. If we are to know the peace of God through the God of peace, we have to look around us and see that then the substance of, of what we see around us, the chaos that we see around us, the hostility, the unrest that we have in our own souls. The only way to beat that, the only way to overcome that is that if something or someone, Jesus Christ, God, the Savior of the world, has the power to overcome that. That is the only way that there can be peace. Similar in our own souls, that tension that we find in our own souls, that unrest that we find in our own souls, we will not be able to put that back together. We need a God with power enough to do that. Unless our sin and our opposition to God himself is removed, we will not know the creator as the God of peace. Instead, we will know him differently. And who is powerful enough to remove our sin? It says here in verse 20 in the second half, it says, it is the great shepherd of the sheep. Now we've been through 13 chapters in Hebrews together. And some of you are joining us this morning and there's 13 chapters in this book of Hebrews. And this is the first time in 13 chapters that this description is used by this author in chapter 13, he calls Christ the shepherd. He's not used that description at all at any other point in this book. And he is no ordinary shepherd. It says here, he is raised from the dead and therefore cannot die again and therefore he cannot be defeated by any foe. That's what this great shepherd is. And however, if you trust him and put your trust in him, then you will find that peace and you will be safe because he is the great shepherd. Throughout the book, the author has spent a great deal of time warning his readers and warning you and warning me, do not fall away. 
Do not be pulled away by things of this world. Do not be pulled away by religiosity. Do not be pulled away by the things that you are doing and miss Jesus Christ. Miss this great shepherd. When Christ died, he sealed for God's, he sealed for you and for me a covenant that will last forever and never be broken. One of the great descriptions of a peaceful moment is Psalm 23. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And the description goes on, and just this, this peace, peaceful moment in what? In the valley of the shadow of death, there is peace. Why? Because his rod and his staff, the great shepherd, is there to comfort. There's no other who has the power, who has the authority, who has the ability to lead us to peaceful green pastures and beside those still waters. He is superior. He is better. He is greater. He is the great shepherd. This is Jesus. You have a God of power. Thirdly this morning, you have a God who equips. It's a fill-in for you. You have a God who equips. Verse 21, he will equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He equips you. Men, if you have a job to do and you put on your tool belt, some of you, if you're like me, there's not a lot of jobs that I do with a tool belt, but I'll just put it on anyway. You know what I mean? Now, some of you, you work for a living with your hands, and you're always out there, and, but some of us don't do that. Some of us are not always knocking down walls and things like that, but if I've got a nail that I need to drive in, there's no reason why I don't just put on the whole tool belt. <laughs> he will equip you. There are jobs that you need a screwdriver for, and there are jobs you need a hammer for. You shouldn't mix the two of them up. You can't drive a nail with a screwdriver. You can't turn a screw with a hammer. You have the wrong tool for the job. But God says here, he says, I will equip you. I'll give you the right tools, the right equipment. And I don't know how many of you have been in a situation. Our, our neighbor is getting, uh, we, we're helping them, an elderly couple, to scrape out the pool and paint the pool this year. And it's something they do every two or three years. And in return, we get to swim in the pool. It's fantastic. We went out and we, we scraped and we scraped and we scraped to get all the old paint out of this pool. And then someone decided, you know what, to make this go quicker, why don't we just go and rent a power washer for the day? And we had been scraping for days. And just kind of come in, and it was gone. That was it. Being equipped, God will equip you, it says here. And not just once, forever and ever. His covenant with you is eternal and sure. Because he does not leave you or give you the resources you need for today. He comes back tomorrow and the next day forever and forever with the resources to do what? To do his will. He provides you what you need to keep your side of the covenant. The faith that works itself out in love. It's the very essence of the new covenant. It's not that only he, he fulfills his side of the covenant, but actually the other side of the covenant he is yours and he fulfills that as well. He equips you and gives you the resources and the power to live out this life for his will. That's why it's called a new covenant. 
That's what Jesus did when he came and died on the cross for your sins and for mine. That's why it's new. That's why it's different because he fulfills both sides of that covenant. He equips you with those resources. He not only saves you, rescues you, pulls you away from your sinful ambitions and calls you to a better way, but he equips you. He gives you the resources to live in that manner. You're not secure in your faith because you are strong. You are not secure in your faith because you have more information or more knowledge than you had last week or last month or last year. You are not secure in your faith because you are 10 years older and now smarter and wiser. You are secure in your faith because God is faithful. You are secure in your faith because he fulfills both sides of the promise. In Ezekiel chapter 36, he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I will put my spirit within you and it will, it will propel you forward. And in all the challenges that this author gives, that this, this letter writer gives in this book of Hebrews, all the different times that he says, don't, don't fall away, don't miss this, don't make this mistake, and all of those challenges, he also is saying God will fulfill those who are his. My spirit will be within you. God will be your strength. God will be your sustenance. God will provide. He will be your provider, your sustainer, your enabler. This is my, personally, this is my only hope for being a faithful pastor, for being in the ministry, for shepherding a congregation. This is my only hope for being the leader of the gospel and to being a Christian until I die. This is my only hope is that God will equip me to do so. And some of you have lived on this earth a number of years more than I have. A number of years, some of you. <laughs> the only hope that you have for eternity is that God fulfills both sides of that covenant. And you may have walked step by step with him, but it's only because of his grace that he has allowed you to do so. And I will cling to that grace until the day that I die. You have a God who equips. Chapter 20, or verse 22 says, and you are not alone. This is a fill-in. You are not alone. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have written you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. The author calls this a word of exhortation, he says, and a word of encouragement, a word of strong encouragement. Encouragement to, to keep going, to keep pressing on, to keep getting up day after day after day, putting on the armor of God. This is the purpose of God's word. Keep enduring, keep going, keep trying. God wants to encourage you. He wants you to be in his word, and he wants his word to encourage you on a daily basis each day to be refreshed. <coughs> the word encourage literally means to infuse courage into someone. God's word will infuse, will, will press in to put courage in you. When you encourage someone with God's word, you are putting courage in their heart. It says, today is a day that I can live this life because God has sustained me through yesterday and he will do so again today and he will do so again tomorrow. It is an injection. 
It's a shot in the arm. It is confidence. It is inspiration. And that is what exhortation is. That's what this encouragement is. And when you, when you go through life, it doesn't mean that you go through life with rose-colored goggles, that you're, you're in some dream state. No, as we said in Psalm 23, as you are in the valley of the shadow of death, as you are going through the very difficult things that you and I go through. Some of you are coming through a very difficult week. I've talked with some of you. Difficult month. And that wrestling is constant. These are not rose-colored goggles. Say, well, everything will be fine. Everything will be perfect. No. This exhortation, this encouragement, the readers were going through persecution. And saying, as you go through that, let me encourage you. Let me exhort you to be able to push forward, press on, go, run the race. He, the author, or maybe she, the author, says this 13-chapter letter, calls it brief. <laughs> we, we've just spent 30 weeks in this or more, and, and, and there's pastors who have gone for three years in the book of Hebrews. And the author says, I just wrote this brief letter. I just want you to, to check it out. I just, I just whipped something up real quick. And this is one of the most dense works of literature in, in the Bible. There's so much here that we can just dig and dig, and it just seems like the more you drill down, the more that there is. And it's almost as though the author is sitting there and saying, I've written 13 chapters on this, but I could go on for days and days and days and days because the subject material that I'm writing about is limitless. Is limitless. The God that I serve is greater. The God that I serve is bigger, larger than I could ever write words about. And he wants the reader to know, I could go on forever about this. But the thing that he puts in here that he wants us to see in the end is it's not just that author. He says there are others who could also go on for days and days and days. And there are many in this room who could go on for days and days and days about what God has done in their lives. And how having faith in a holy God who is tangible and real and, and individually personal and yet corporately can motivate all of us to take steps forward. How that is so tangible and so real. They can write for days about this. It says, you are not alone. Look, look at this Timothy. Look what he's going through. And God is sustaining him. And look at all these people, it says. Some of your translations say, all the saints. Just as an aside, it says, all the saints. These are living people. Sometimes we think of the saints as those who have gone before us or those who are in the past or those who are buried and, and you can go visit their grave. That's one of the saints. No, it says all of the saints and these are the people who are actively serving, living. You and I are the saints that he is talking about. Look at all of these people. They are records. They are the record keepers of what God is doing in their lives. And they could write for days and days as well of the glory of God. They are part of something bigger than themselves. And you are part of something bigger than yourself. You are not alone. So whatever it is that you have to face this morning, whatever it is that's on your schedule for this week, whatever it is, you are not alone. Lastly, very quickly in verse 25, he just puts it down. Grace be 
with you all. You have the grace of God. You have the grace of God. And the letter writer, the author, hands it over to you. I hand over to you this abundance and this power of not just grace right now, but of future grace. We are reading this letter 2,000 years later, and the grace is still sufficient today. This grace of divine peace. The grace of the, a deathless shepherd who guards and guides you. The grace of an eternal covenant that secures and is unbreakable. And this relationship that cannot be separated because of who God is. The grace of God's commitment to equip us with all the resources that we need to do his will. The grace of God to work in us what pleases him. This grace be with you. This grace of God if you will, travels. This grace of God is not something that you come here on a Sunday and, and pick, up, you know, pick up your bag of grace here on, on your way out. No, this grace of God travels. This grace of God is everywhere at all times. It is what powers us. It's not just here in church on a Sunday. It is, and it's not just when you are turning through the pages of the book of Hebrews. There is grace in the book of Leviticus and Numbers. And all the way through all of Scripture, we see God's grace. It is not only when you are reading your Bible uh, one morning during the week. There is grace throughout the week. God's grace surrounds you while you drive to and from work. God's grace surrounds you when you do a good job of parenting, when you do a poor job of parenting. God's grace is there. God's grace is there when you lead. God's grace when you interact with fellow Christians. And God's grace is there when you interact with those who are far from Christ. And when you do so in a God-fearing way and when you do so in a poor manner, God's grace is there. God's grace travels. The grace of God empowers you. The grace of God sustains you. The grace of God enables you. This is what is so beautiful about how this author is closing. He says, all of what I've put out in front of you, don't forget God's grace. Don't forget God's grace. We don't live a single day, a single moment. We do not take a breath without the grace of God. Next week, we actually will begin a sermon series in the book of Titus. We'll make our way through the book of Titus, but we've, we're going to pick up this theme, and you'll see this theme in, in the book of Titus. It's called the grace-driven church. And we'll spend most of our summer there in Titus. You know, churches can be driven by a number of things. They can choose to be driven by a, a ton of different things. But the author Titus, as we go into that series, you'll see that author Titus says, no, you should be a church that is driven by grace. You should be a church that is motivated by grace because that's what God has called his church to. But that's next week. This morning, Hebrews, this author, he's employing you personally, individually, to live a faith that is equipped by grace. As the band comes up, we'll have a closing song. There's an old hymn that is a favorite of mine, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. As we think through that this morning, and we look at verse 21 again, because this is really the meat of this passage. Verse 21, I'll equip you with everything good for doing his will, and he may work in us what is pleasing to him through Christ Jesus. Do not miss that. We're not living a, a list of rules. 
We're not living through of, of, of do's and don'ts. But no, through Christ Jesus, it is through his grace that he empowers us to do what? To whom at the end will be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I can't close this message any better than that. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God, this morning we give you the glory. We give you the glory for what you've been doing in this church, what you've done through this series, through us studying Hebrews. We thank you for the author of Hebrews. And although we don't know his or her name, Lord, we know their heart because it just oozes out of the words of this book. And as we've read this letter, Lord, we are compelled by the grace that is just saturated throughout it. The grace to live our lives, to pursue hard after you, to know that you are the sustainer, you are the keeper, you are the great shepherd. And so this morning as we sing songs and as we we close our time together, let us leave here a people of grace. Let us be driven and motivated by grace. Let our faith not be a faith that is a white knuckle, we'll keep it together type of faith, but a faith that is motivated by the grace that you've shown us and therefore we show others as well. We thank you for equipping us. We thank you for giving us the tools that we need. God, we thank you for your grace. So this morning we will sing to you the great God that you are. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, forever and ever, to be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we sing? I will be in the back. I'll head directly there now. If any of you would like to speak to me for a moment. May you live faith equipped by God's grace. Amen.